When I was a kid in school, the words that scared me to death were pop quiz. Guess what? We're starting with a pop quiz this morning, all right? But fear not. It's a test taken only in your head. I'm sure you're going to ace it. Uh, So first question is, the Pledge of Allegiance, was it ever changed? And the answer to that is yes, it was. When was the last time it was changed? Well, the Pledge of Allegiance, last time it was changed was in 1954 when they added the phrase, under God. Before that, before 1954, that phrase, under God, didn't appear in the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, here's another question. Second question is, what's the United States motto? Sometimes they ask people that question, they look like they feel like they should know the answer, but aren't quite sure, and then they venture a guess. Is it in God we trust? Yes, yes it is. Uh, When did that become the United States motto? Well, it became the motto in 1956 through an act of the United States Congress. That was the official time that the In God We Trust became the national motto. Okay, one more question on our quiz. You're familiar maybe with the National Prayer Breakfast? It's been going on for a, a, a long time. And the president gathers with religious leaders, whatever, from all around the country, and they pray. Now, when did the first National Prayer Breakfast, at least how we think of it, start? Well, it started in 1953. Are you seeing a theme in, these, in, my, in our quiz? In the 1950s, not too distant past, but in the 1950s, a lot of Christians, especially white Christians, felt at home in America because their faith was respected. Christians even had a certain degree of cultural power. Now, I say white Christians not to be controversial, but just to acknowledge that black Americans didn't have full access to voting rights until the the mid-60s. So what's the vibe today? Is our faith still respected? And and, and do we have cultural power and all that kind of things as Christians? Well, to quote Dorothy, uh, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? I mean, the vibe of the 50s is really different than the world we live in. But have Christians made that adjustment. There's a couple recent sports stories. They could use a lot of stories, but here's just a couple recent ones from the headlines uh, that, that show how much the world has changed from the 1950s. Uh, the first one involves Tony Dungy, who's the former Super Bowl winning coach, very mild-mannered guy, very devout Christian on NBC sports and football programming and that kind of stuff. He announced that he was going to go, because he's a Christian, to the March for Life and speak of the March for Life. And that and other reasons, uh, there was an article, a national article, calling him a right-wing zealot that needed to lose his job. Not long after that, uh, a Russian hockey skater named Ivan Provorov uh, refused. He said because of his faith, he chose not to take part in a pregame warm-up on Pride Night. After the game, when they asked him, why didn't you participate in that? He said, I respect everybody's choices, but because of my faith, I didn't feel comfortable like I should do it. And the National Hockey League Network, so not a fringe group at all, one of their top reporters said he should be, because of that, he should be deported back to Russia and go fight in the Ukrainian war. Now, what's the point? It's not the 1950s anymore, right? There's a whole different vibe. Christians of every race feel like they're a minority in a culture that doesn't understand their faith, doesn't respect their faith, and even every once in a while feels like they're against their faith. So uh, how, how should we as Christians respond? Well, we should be prepared for that. 
A lot of times we act like we're not, but we should be prepared because the Bible gives us all kinds of resources about how to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't understand or respect us. In fact, did you know that most of the Bible was written by and for people who were minorities living in a world that was much more hostile to their faith than our world is to ours? See, that's why we've been preaching uh, through these books of the Bible. Like last fall, we went through the book of Daniel. And, and, and the idea is that Daniel and his small group of, of believers were minorities in Babylonian empire, a world that didn't respect or understand their faith. And, and then last week, we started a sermon series through uh, Esther. And Esther is about 150 years after Daniel and Babylon. And, and there they are. They're living out their faith as a small group of believers in this Persian empire that doesn't know or respect their faith, doesn't understand their faith. So if you ever feel that way, like the culture doesn't understand me, doesn't respect me, that I, I feel like I'm a minority. As a Christian, if I were to be vocal about my faith, I feel like I'd be a minority at whether it's school or, or social media or my workplace or, or wherever, then Daniel and Esther would go, yeah, we totally get you. We know what your, life, your life's like. In fact, most Christians throughout the world and throughout history would know what your life is like. Now, when Christians find themselves as a minority in a, in a culture that doesn't get them, there are two pressures that we all feel. One pressure is to accommodate, and the other is to separate from culture. See, those who want to accommodate to the culture, they say in their head things like, well, when in Persia, do as the Persians, right? They're a little bit embarrassed by their faith. Like, they feel like they have to apologize for some of these things the Bible teaches, they would say, look, I don't want to change the faith. I just want to update it so that I'm on the right side of history. And because we as human beings want respect and we want to feel a part of the group and to fit in, we end up compromising faith in order to fit in. Those are the people who accommodate. Now, now what about the people who separate? Well, these are the people who are so scared of compromise that they just withdraw from the culture. Like they're just going to sit it all out. And in the past, that might have looked like something like, well, we don't go to movies and we, we don't go to these bars. It might have looked like that. Today, I think separation means I'm not going to participate in the controversial conversations that are happening today about faith and culture and stuff like that. I'm just going to sit here and mind my own business and hope no one pays attention to me and I don't get run over in this fractured, divisive world that we live in. But Jesus says, you can't accommodate, but you shouldn't separate either. Instead, what he says is, I want you to navigate a confusing, messy world that doesn't know me. Here's how he puts it in John 17. This is kind of a summation of what Jesus says in that chapter on this topic. In the world, this is how he's describing Christians, the church, you, me, in the world, but not of the world. Like in the world, so you can't separate but not of the world, so you can't accommodate. Instead, you got to live in this tension in the middle where you're navigating a world that is messy and difficult and at odds with your faith. So that's why we're in the book of Esther, because Esther, her as a person, but the book of Esther is going to help us follow Jesus in this world we live in. 
Now, now, last week, Dave started the series, and when we're in a series like this, it's not very long, you, you, you really need to catch up if all possible. So if you didn't hear last week's sermon, go to our podcast or our app or our website and, and make sure you listen to it. And last week, you got a notebook to take you through Esther. If you didn't do it this week, that's fine. Just jump in tomorrow, and you'll get a lot more out of next Sunday's sermon. But the book of Esther starts in the Persian Empire with this great Persian king named Xerxes. He's throwing a big party. Dude likes to party. Here we go. Wine is flowing. Verse 8. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Sounds like some of your tailgates. I know I've seen you out there, right? There's a guy named Herodotus. Dave mentioned him last week. He was a Greek guy who's a historian of the Persian Empire. And we have a lot of information on the Persian Empire. So one of the things Herodotus tells us, and, and you're going you're gonna to think I'm lying, but I'm not. Herodotus tells us that the way the Persian government would make decisions is they would get drunk and then do kind of government business. They would make decisions drunk, but, but as a safeguard, when they sobered up the next day, they'd think about it again to make sure they made a good decision. And if they, on a rare occasion, made a decision sober, they, they had to get drunk to see if they made a good decision when they were sober. Which, if you think about it, might explain Washington, D.C. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> but anyway, at this party, Xerxes has had too much to drink. So he calls on his queen. Verse, verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. Now, the way the Hebrew is written here, it's likely that he called Queen Vashti to come wearing only her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Alcohol is part of God's good creation, and it can be enjoyed to God's glory in moderation and responsibly. But alcohol can also do a lot of damage in people's lives. I've seen it do damage to people I really care about. I'm sure you could say the same thing, maybe even in your life. So I think we would be wise to be very, very careful about it. Clearly the king here, is, his judgment is clouded because he's been drinking too much wine. And so he, he, he makes this ridiculous, prideful demand of Queen Vashti. Verse 12. But when the attendants uh, delivered the king's command... Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So Vashti refuses. And the king's embarrassed by this because she's not doing what he says to do. So he goes to his advisors and he says, okay, what do we do now that she's refused? And, and the advisors are in full panic mode. They say, king, this is not good. News about her refusal is going to spread throughout the empire. And all of a sudden, we're going to find that no wife is listening to her husband. So the advisors tell King Xerxes, you need to banish Vashti from your presence and send a decree out into the entire uh, empire. Verse 21. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household. Now, people read this, and they get upset. And they say, I don't like the way the Bible talks about marriage. No, no, this is the way the Persians thought about marriage. This isn't God's design for marriage. In fact, this does not at all describe what a Christian marriage should look like. 
But one thing we keep hearing about this king is what a big deal he is. Like He's a big shot. He's got all the wealth and all the power. He, he, he rules over this great empire from India to Ethiopia. It's 127 provinces. He's got nobles and governors and military officials all at this banquet. And this banquet is about his own self-exaltation. The banquet is in honor of his own greatness. I mean, this king Xerxes is a really big deal. But he's deeply insecure, right? I mean, he's so insecure about who he is. Although he's got everything that you could have possibly want, he still aches on the inside. He's not sure who he is. He's built his identity on all these things that could be taken away from him at any moment. He's deeply insecure. That's why he has Vashti come out and want to parade her in front of people to build up his own self-worth. He clearly drinks too much. And when you drink as much as this king is drinking, that's clouding your judgment and the way you rule your country, there's something going on inside underneath that's causing that. And he's prone to fits of rage. So, so here's a guy who has everything and yet is empty. Which when you think of the Bible, it, it makes sense because the Bible says kind of gospel math. The, the Bible says you can have everything, but if you don't have Jesus, you got nothing. Can you testify to that? Like, could you say, yeah, in my own life, I see that? Maybe in the past or maybe today, maybe today you look at your life and you go, look, I should be pretty happy with my life. A lot of people would exchange positions with me, but I'm not. I'm not as happy as I want to be. So, so what do you do? Do you just keep banking more on trying to get everything better and better? Or, or maybe you think, what do, how do I get more Jesus in my life? So, so the king's cabinet, they, they talk to Xerxes and they say, okay, here's what you do. In order to replace Vashti, we should have like a, a Miss Persia contest, right? And we'll bring all these women and, and you, we'll put them in beauty treatments for a year. And, and, and then they come to you one at a time and whichever one pleases you the most, make her the, the, the queen. So it's at that point in the story that we meet a Jew named Mordecai and his cousin Esther. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Now, Hadassah is her Jewish name, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who is also known as Esther, Esther being her Persian name, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. So here's a woman who had become an orphan, so her cousin is helping raise her. Verse 8. When the king's orders and edict had been proclaimed, Many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Now, now notice this. Esther was taken. So maybe she didn't volunteer to be in this Miss Persia uh, contest. But, but like, David said, like David said last week, it's ambiguous. I mean, the author of Esther, the person who gave us this book, wasn't interested in telling us, yes, this is right and this is wrong. In other words, it doesn't evaluate Xerxes' behavior, doesn't evaluate Vashti's behavior or Esther's behavior. It's, it's, it's messy, it's ambiguous, it's not clear. And that's hard for us. We don't like that. Because what we want to know is, okay, tell me who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Like, we want clear lines. But that's not going to happen in Esther. Clearly, whatever happened between Esther and, and, and the king, there was a great power differential. You have the king versus this orphan exile. 
So what would happen is the king has this contest where these girls would come to him one at a time. And each night he'd spend the night with a different one. And if he uh, didn't like the girl, he would banish them back to the harem where they would spend their whole life by themselves. In other words, once a king had been with a woman, that woman could not go out into the community, have a family, get married, that kind of thing. Not allowed. The second thing that could happen is he could like her, like be happy with the girl and uh, send him back to the harem and call her every once in a while, whenever he felt like it. And the third thing is if he really liked her, then she could become the queen. Verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. I mean, it's pretty clear here that Persia uh, values men and women differently, right? I mean, Persia values uh, women for their beauty and, and, and values men for their wealth and power. In Persia, a man's, a man's uh, credibility, his respect, his self-worth was built on the, the, the size of his wallet. And a woman's was built on the size of her dress. Aren't you glad we don't live in a culture like that? Like, aren't you glad that we can't identify that at all? That we don't live in such a superficial world? Or maybe we do. Or, or maybe we sit and we judge Persian. I can't believe them. And yet, how much have human beings changed? See, the world will always be like Xerxes whether it's in Persia or America, then or now, the world will always judge you based on superficial uh, standards. The world is always going to come to you and say, based on the externals, not of who you are, not of your character, but your image. And the world is going to come to you and say, you need our beauty treatments. You need our beauty treatments. It might be education. It might be credentialing. It might be money or power or, or what neighborhood you live in or, or your appearance. But the world's always going to come and say, take our beauty treatments and then we will pay attention to you. But God says that while human beings look at the outward, he cares about the inward. God says that he cares about who you are, not what you look like, and not how much you have. But we return to our big story here. How is it that this book equips us, these chapters equip us to live out our faith in a world that doesn't share our faith? And what we've already seen is that we can't accommodate and we can't separate, but instead what Jesus wants us to do is to navigate this messy world with biblical wisdom. It's messy, it's tough, it's not easy. But he gives us his wisdom. Notice this about Esther's names or Hadassah's name. She's the only person in the entire book that is given two names, that we're told there are two names. And one is a Jewish name and one is the Persian name. So I think in this sense that we are supposed to identify with Esther, that we are her, that just like she lives in two kingdoms, she's trying to be a child of God in the Persian empire. That, that we too are citizens of this world, this moment, this city, this community, this culture. And yet, if we're Christians, then we know that we are citizens of heaven. 
that, 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 we, uh, that this isn't our, our home. We're citizens of heaven, and yet it is our home because we live at our years here. And so just like Esther felt torn and pulled two different directions, that's how you and I are going to feel in this world. So how do we live in it? How do we live in that gray zone? How do we live in the messiness? I mean, for some people, it's easy. Look, they look at Vashti and they go, we like her. Look, she stood up to the man. She said, no, she, she didn't compromise. And those same people often don't like Esther because they look at her and they go, she was too compliant. She went along with the moral degradation. She ends up as a Jew marrying this pagan king that she would, shouldn't have. But remember that word taken? Remember that word taken? I mean, what choice did she have? How much of a choice? Like I said, we don't know. The author doesn't tell us, but I can't help but asking, what was she supposed to do? And in a world far from God, the world that we live in, every world, back in Persia or now, and the world we live in that's far from God, it is going to be messy. We're going to be put in positions that we're not exactly sure what to do. We're going to be pulled in different ways. In a world far from God, we're going to be in situations that we don't know how to handle. There's no clear biblical answer to it. So, so let me just give you some. Just might make you uncomfortable, but that's my job. Should a Christian attend a gay wedding? Should Christians use someone's preferred pronouns? I mean, the list could be long of the questions that we have to answer every day. And here's the deal. There's no specific Bible verse that will answer that question. Yes, the Bible speaks to it in the sense that you have biblical wisdom and, 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 and the Bible gives us principles that we have to figure out how to apply. But there's no verse you can attend to that answers or turn to that answers that question as clearly as we'd like. And so by God's grace, we, we have to kind of navigate this whole uh, world we live in that's messy and confusing do our best to understand God's heart and God's purpose and God's mission and God's scripture and apply it. But then we have to give grace to sincere Christians who make other decisions. And you know what? We're not very good at that part, are we? Because we live in a hypercritical age. And so if you don't see it the way I do it, you're wrong. And in some cases, maybe that's true, but not in all cases. See, there are some issues that you have to stand firm on that are clear and central, and you gotta hold tightly to those without compromise. But there are other issues that you have to hold open-handedly because they're not as clear or they're not as central. And it's hard sometimes to figure out, okay, I've got an issue here. Is it a, I hold it tight or I hold it open-handedly? But in community with other Christians, both in our world, but also from other cultures and other times in history, help us to see that. But it's not always clear. And so we have to give grace to other Christians. We can kind of argue with them about it, like try to convince them we're right, and, or they might try to convince us they're right, and that's okay. That conversation is healthy and good for us. But still it's gonna come down to judgment. So let's close with a Jewish holiday. Purim is a Jewish holiday that will be celebrated this upcoming March. It's an annual holiday. And on Purim, they celebrate, the Jews celebrate how God saved the Jewish people in the book of Esther. We haven't gotten to that part of the story yet, but it's coming. How did God save the Jewish people from the Persians? And what's weird is, so every Purim, they read Esther over and over. But what's weird is that when you open the book of Esther, it doesn't start with the Jews. The book about how God saved them starts with King Xerxes, a pagan Persian emperor 
who, who doesn't worship God. He doesn't worship God at all. And here he's having this banquet and he's making these dumb decisions all kind of hyped up on wine. And for some reason, we don't know why, he calls for Vashi to come out and only her crown. And we're not exactly sure why, we can guess, but Vashi's like, no, I'm not going out there to be ogled. It's all kind of gross. And, and, and when she did that, I don't know that she understood the consequences, how it was all going to play out, that she was going to lose her queenship and, and that all these circumstances were going to come about to make this, this, this Jewish girl, this Jewish Persian girl named Esther to be queen. But there's this whole set of events that happen. There's kind of touched off by Xerxes calling for, for Vashti. And it all kind of goes down the line until Esther's put in a position where she can save Israel from destruction. And that's how God works to save his people, to keep his promise, to save his people. The promise he made to Abraham centuries before. So what's the point in all of that? That God is at work in unexpected places. God is at work in the palace of a pagan Persian king. That God is at work in all the brokenness that you see around you that rightly grieves you. That God is at work in, in these coincidences. And he's at work to bring about his plan. But you only know that by faith. See, like if you had lived in Persia, you wouldn't have seen the, the God at work behind the scenes. All you see it happen and you have to trust that God is in charge and that he's at work. It would have been easy to get discouraged and, and to just accommodate and say, well, when in Persia, do as the Persians to get on the right side of Persian history, not realizing that Persia is an empire that's gone. So if you're on the side of Persia, you're on the wrong side of history. See, what Esther tells us is that God works in all those unexpected moments, that God is at work in all the unexpected places, that God is at work in all the coincidences. So this is not the time to get discouraged and faithfully following God in a messy world. This is not the time to give up and give in. It's not the time to accommodate, nor the time to separate. It's the time to trust Jesus that we as Christians, in grace and love to one another, can navigate a messy world. Because here's what we know in the end, in the end, we know how it ends. Jesus wins. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for all of us as we try to be faithful to you in this world. We don't always know what to do, Jesus. So we pray for grace, for wisdom, to know what decisions to make. We pray for grace to give to other Christians when they make different decisions than us. Jesus, we pray that you would keep us faithful, that we wouldn't accommodate or separate, but that we would be faithful to what you have called us to do and be in our broken world. Oh, help us, Jesus, because apart from you, we've got no hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great day.